You're listening to TIP. 1% rule is really market dependent. And it also depends on what your play is, how you're purchasing the house. So the 1% rule, I think, is a good guideline for new people. Like, hey, all right, this is a good like, smell check. If it smells decent, let's dig into it. In this week's episode, I talk with Mark Horton about combining short-term rental investing with long-term rental investing, all while being a real estate agent. Mark Horton is a Green Beret turned real estate investor and entrepreneur. He transitioned from active duty orders to being a full-time real estate investor and agent by utilizing the Burr and B method to grow his short-term rental portfolio quickly. He's also an entrepreneur, having founded a co-hosting company in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Short-term rentals can generate a lot of relative cash flow, more than traditional rentals on average, but they can also be a bit riskier and take a bit more work. There's also a lot of competition entering the short-term rental space these days. So Mark and I walk through why it might be best to combine short-term rentals with long-term rentals rather than just relying on one or the other. Now, without further delay, let's get right into this week's episode with Mark Horan. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Mark Horton. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, Robert. You were a Green Beret in the US Army. And while you were stationed at Fort Bragg, you decided that you were going to start investing in real estate. Where did this thought come from? What made you want to get into real estate? There's, there's a lot of different reasons I wanted to get into real estate. The, the biggest thing was, is I was coming near the end of my time on my active duty orders at Fort Bragg, and I was going to go into the National Guard. And I wanted to really think about what I was going to provide because I was starting to grow a family and start having a wife and children. I was thinking about different things. If something does happen to me on deployments or something happens to me in the long run, how I can continue to provide for them if something happens. I actually sat at my house with like a big whiteboard and looked at it. I was like, well, what am I good at? And I was like, well, I'm never going to be like a professional writer. So I won't have that passive income. I'm not a tech guy. I've done construction in the past. Okay. All right. I have some skills here. That's kind of what I did in the army. You know, I, I was a heavy equipment operator. I was a special forces engineer sergeant. So I did a lot of construction, demolition, stuff like that. And then I started getting into like, all right, maybe I can flip houses. Then I started learning about burrs, getting rentals, doing long terms. And then I found myself and was like, dude, this is something I can do. If there is an issue with the, the properties or something like that, it's something I know I can fix. That really helped me guide me into where I wanted to be, knowing that. It wasn't like stock markets. If the stocks tank, I can't go to the building, but hey, I need to fix this. But I go to my house and fix the water mine. So that was one of the reasons I really got into real estate investment is developing a passive income for my family, for my kids, for my future generations. And I knew it was something that I can understand, I can comprehend. And it was something I was already familiar with because I had done roofing. I had done some construction in the past. So that's really what guided me into the real estate. If you were looking for something passive, you probably pretty quickly learned that flipping was not going to be the solution to that. And it wasn't really going to provide for your family, right? If, if, I mean, if you were looking for something that was going to provide for your family, you know, God forbid something happened to you, flipping is not going to really be that solution. Yeah, no, no, flipping is not. That is a grind that HGTV and all those other places make it look super simple. 
getting a flip and then actually trying to do your scope of work and, and getting contractors to be there on time and get it done on a timeline is not an easy task. Maybe other people have better luck on it in other markets, but I know personally, I've even owned houses with the person I was flipping with and they have screwed me over. Contractors, that's just a different ballgame. Hoping now I finally have a good contract, but you're right, it's not passive. But that's what I learned. That's why I started off and got me interested in it. And then I learned that there was a thing called the Burr method. And I was like, oh, I can flip the house and then keep it and get income. And if I do it good enough, I can get paid to do it. So that's what really motivated me. It's not as much money as a flip, but if I keep doing it the right way, I'm going to keep building up a war chest. I'm going to keep building up passive income. And now I can just collect checks and chill out. Somebody once told me that if you're getting into flipping, there's nothing wrong with that. It can provide great income and it can be pretty lucrative, but you're really just buying yourself a job. And that's not really what a lot of real estate investors want to do. And the other kind of analogy that somebody once told me that is interesting to me is that you don't see any nationwide like multi-billion dollar flipping companies. You do see that with rentals, but you don't see that with with flippers. And at least what this guest had told me, he had never heard of one. I haven't heard of one either. And not that you have to build a multi-billion dollar company, but that just kind of tells you a little bit about the business model and how scalable or passive it can possibly be. I think there is a niche for it. And I think there's having that tool, being able to flip a property in your tool belt is something good. So I can just use this example of a house that I recently just purchased, right? The house was purchased for 152. We needed about 20K worth of work and it will sell for about 145, 250. I'm about to list it pretty soon up here. Because the way our rent market works, it doesn't make the 1% rule. It wouldn't be a cash flowing asset. But because I have those skills from burring and stuff, was it? I was like, well, it's a good deal. I'm the only one that has access to it. So I flipped it. Yes, I absolutely agree. Is the burr technique or buying long term rentals or, or any type of real estate that's passive is great. But I definitely think it's something you should have in your tool belt because any opportunity you can have to move the ball forward, now you can buy another house with that money in. That's why I at least have done a few, just so I'm up on those skills and able to to, uh, flip houses when they come by. And I know a good deal when I see one and I'm able to manipulate the deal or see which way my outs are. And it's been really helpful helping grow everything I've gotten so far. We've talked about the 1% rule, which you just mentioned here on the show, but it's been a little while and we always get new listeners. So for someone who hasn't heard that before as a new listener, tell us exactly what the 1% rule is. And then I'm also curious... How much do you rely on that? Because certain markets, it's more reliable than others. Certain market conditions, like right now, it's a pretty hot market. 1% rule might not make as much sense as it once did. I mean, at one point, it was the 2% rule, not the 1% rule. So so I'm curious, what are you finding with the 1% rule? And also explain what that is for us. All right. So 1% rule is super basic. And I like to call it beer math. This is the beer math that you're doing when you're at the bar with your boys. So basically, if you buy a house for $100,000, each month rent should be $1,000. Super simple. That's how much you should be and that should be cash flowing. The 1% rule, I remember when it used to be the 2% rule, the people who bought houses before this COVID pandemic, whatever, jacked up are now starting to get the 2% rules because my OG houses are getting that, which is nice. That cash flow is really good. But the 1% rule is really market dependent. And it also depends on what your play is, how you're purchasing the house. So the 1% rule, I think is a good guideline for new people. Like, hey, all right, this is a good like, smell check. If it smells decent, let's dig into it. You also need to determine what type of loan you're going to be using, what advantages that you have with that loan. And what I personally do as a real estate agent or as a real estate investor, I look at the actual the cash on cash ROI, the return on investment. Because my market in Fayetteville, North Carolina is very heavily dependent on the uh, VA loan. It's a veteran's loan that's given to service members. It's a 0% down 
It is a loan that you only get when you're in the military. It's 0% down and it changes the ball game on how you look at numbers for your first property. So what I do is when I'm at Fort Bragg, I kind of teach, I also teach uh, other service members how to use the um, VA loan for investing purposes because there's some rules and regulations and restrictions on how you can use it. The reason I'm talking about this is because it gets into the 1% rule. So when veterans, like people that use the VA loan, it might be different than what someone who is a Burr investor does it. Because a Burr investor has to get that 1% rule because they're leaving so much money on the table because they have to either Burr and they're going to get a ton of equity. With my service members, like we can go buy a house for 140 and they're going to have 36, maybe $5,000 worth of closing costs. And in two years, when they PCS to another duty station and it's cash flowing $200, their cash and cash return on investment is nearly 50% a year. So if you break it down to a cash and cash ROI is how I like to look at it. Like, dude, you are beating the stock market. You're at 50%. The stock market over the last 40, 50 years has averaged 10%. So that's how I use it in my market when I'm dealing with VA loans. Now I go to a person who is an investor who has to use commercial loans who are doing bird deals. The way they look at the 1% rule is going to be completely different because they have a um, cash flow. They have to make sure they're getting good investments and the way the lending is going to lend on that because they're going to have to have a lease when they go to refinance, especially if they're using hard money, private money, and different things. So the 1% rule is a good rule of thumb. It's a good like, hey, okay, this is about right. This house, ARV is 130, 130K. It's going to rent for 1300. Now let's break down the numbers. So then we go to a bigger pockets calculator. I put in all the estimates on the repairs and everything. And I still look for that cash on cash return on investment. And you know, my rule of thumb is I don't touch a property unless that uh, cash on cash ROI is 12%. So the 1% rule, I think in my market for what I'm doing is very good as a quick sniff test. It allows you to like, even if we want to look at the property, right? If I'm buying a property for 200K, but it won't even rent for you know, 1400, that's not an investment property. That's a primary residence. So it's a good like, hey, no, we're not even going to look at this property. Let's just throw it to the side. And then we can go deep if it passes that first test. It's your introduction test is the way I look at the 1% rule. Yeah, that sniff test is exactly how I use it too. If I have 50 different deals that I want to analyze, say I'm looking at a market, there's 50 different deals on the MLS. I want to know which ones I should dive into a little bit more. I'll basically quickly do the 1% rule for all of them. And not to say if something's 0.8% or 0.7% that I won't look at it, but if something's 0.2 to 0.5 or 6, I know it's probably not going to be a great investment. So I kind of just knock those off or at least put them on the back burner when it comes to analysis. And I'll focus on those ones that are a little bit closer to the 1% and then go back to the others if I need to. There's another thing that I like to do when I'm doing analysis is like you talk, you look at 50 properties, right? If a property's close, let's say it's at 0.7, right? It's not that 1%. What I'll actually do on those properties is I have a spreadsheet. I'll put them on the back burner, but I'll keep checking them every week because in this, at least this market, now when I started off, when I started off, it was completely different than this market. If a property sits for more than 21 days, now I can lowball them and maybe now the property is at the 1%. So that's just another technique that I use for my investor clients is I keep those properties if I think they're overpriced in a separate category and I keep checking them every week and then I can throw a lowball offer. In and actually, I've snagged two properties recently that are complete refinance or completely redone. Listing agent overpriced them. I used that to the advantage because it was sitting there a little too long. At least in North Carolina, I could tell that they were using hard money. So I knew they had a timeline. And I was able to pick up two good properties from my clients recently. One of the great benefits we have today is that we have a ton of educational materials available for free. But this can actually also lead to a problem, which is information overload. And I know this because I've experienced it myself. 
there's just so much on a specific topic maybe that I'm interested in learning about. And sometimes that leaves me in a point where I don't really know where to start. If I have a hundred or 200 different resources that I could choose about one topic, I don't really know which one to begin with. So once you decided you were going to get into real estate and start investing, where did you turn for resources? For someone that's new, they're about to get started in real estate, they want to learn more, but they're not sure exactly what resources to use. What were some of the most impactful and helpful resources that you used to learn? The way I did stuff is I initially started bigger pockets. I think that's like it's kind of like you know, everyone started with like Rich Dad Poor Dad and in like 20 years. I think everyone's like, oh, I started on bigger pockets. You know, it's gonna be the new Rich Dad Poor Dad. Then I read Rich Dad Poor Dad. That was the next step because I'll listen to a bunch of podcasts and that's what everyone told me to read. But from there, I got actually connected with a local real estate meetup called Pints and Properties. It's the real estate firm that I work for. But it was just like a meetup once a month where you go to a bar and you would have a drink and they would have some speaker. They weren't there to sell you anything. They were just there to teach you. So that got me going into the real estate, learning about different techniques. And then when it came down to it, I was like, after like, for me, four weeks, which I thought was a long time, I just said, screw it. I'm going to get into this. And I went and bought a house. I had some cash from like deployments and different things saved up. So I just went out and I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this. The easiest way for me to learn something isn't by watching, isn't by reading. You know, those aren't my strong suits, is my uh, ability to take information from a book and apply it. I'm more of like a, I kind of got to have the information beat into me. So putting up my own like 20, 30 grand into a property to make it work, that taught me more than anything. So I went out and bought my first property. I kind of self-managed it at the beginning. It was a long term. It was kind of a turnkey. It needed a light rehab. I did all the work myself. That was a pain that was, uh, oh, I can do this in three weeks. Uh, seven weeks later, I finally got it to the property manager type deal, one of those real classy ones. And, but I learned a lot. So that's how I kind of learned. Initially, I started Bigger Pockets. Then I found a local real estate meetup because they would know the area best. Like Bigger Pockets is good for the broad information, but I knew where I wanted to invest. So I met a real estate meetup. I met an investor friendly real estate agent who actually knew how to run numbers. And that's a huge thing that I think a lot of people get confused about. A lot of agents will put out there, oh, I know this type of investor. Yeah, they talk a big game, but this guy actually owned properties and I got involved with them because they actually taught me how to read the numbers. And then from there, my next step was I just went out and bought a property. And super simple. Just go out and did it. And I figured it out and made it work. And then I went from there. I've never personally been in the military. And so I'm not saying that sports or working out or motocross is nearly as difficult as being in the military. But what I've seen in my life or what I've experienced is that there are certain things that are difficult that teach people lessons and have actually helped people in other parts of life. What did you learn in the military that you've been able to apply to being a real estate investor that has really helped your journey? Oh man, not sleeping much. <laughs> when you're stressing out about numbers and like your first property, am I going to get this deal? The, the not sleeping. That and I actually, the biggest thing that I took from the military was SOPs. They're called standard operating procedures. They're basically how we do things. The reason I had to develop SOPs early on was because I was still National Guard. Even though I left my active duty orders were finished, I went back to the National Guard. And I was still special forces in the National Guard. So I knew I had a deployment coming up. And coming up from a deployment, you have schools like nine months out, which was actually the reason I planned to get into investing full time was because I knew I had orders in case I failed as a real estate agent. I knew I had a deployment to pick me up and make sure I had money. So I had a year of like, I knew I was going to be able to go to school, army schools. I was going to be able to do different things and get still a paycheck. It's called guard bumming. I'm a great guard bum. I had to develop SOPs because I knew I was going to be gone for my different companies. So I had to develop, write different things out. So in case I wasn't there or my wife or some of the people that we hired to be part of our team, 
to just take this sheet and be like, all right, this is what you need to do. This is how it's going to be done. And this is how we make it successful. What I learned later as I started reading more is I started developing myself to you know, hire myself out of my own job early on because I was forced to knowing I had a deployment coming in. So developing those SOPs, uh, having SOPs, and, and I know if there's military people out here, we hate the word SOPs. Oh, go write your SOPs out. Go write your SOPs. Well, those stupid things that we did while we in the military, developing those rules and regulations or like, hey, the process of doing something has really helped my business grow. It's helped me grow other businesses now. And it's helping me to hire more people and continue to grow and be part of the financial independent movement and have an early retirement. You know, I'm aiming to retire at 40. And I'm able to do this is because I've taken this one thing from the military, SOP development, and I have developed how other people can do my job. So I can start taking a step away and go build something else so I can develop that five, six, seven streams of income that aren't just in real estate. And this allows me to grow and continue to grow my businesses and my companies. Like I said, I was never in the military, but SOPs are still something that I personally, I'm not sure really where I picked it up. But maybe I just read about it in a book or I think I might have read it in like the four hour work week or something like that. But it's been crucial for me too in my business, whether it's real estate or the podcast or whatever it is, I rely super heavily on SOPs. And I highly recommend anybody that doesn't know much about them or isn't using them now and you want to scale a side hustle or even a real estate business to really learn what SOPs are and start to implement them today. Yeah, man, they are key. Have a process to like maintain them. Everyone I talked to, and when I was talking about books that I read later on, I read Four Hour Work Week, and I was like, oh, I've been already doing this, and I've messed up a bunch of times. If I would just read this book right off the bat, I would have been like months ahead of where I was, and I had a lot less stress. Reading too, actually reading books, that was a new thing for me as well. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. 
but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. You told us earlier that you got started with long-term rentals. Talk to us a bit about your transition from long-term traditional rentals into becoming a short-term rental investor. When in your investing career did you make that transition and why did you decide to do that? At the time, my market was Fayetteville. I'm still in Fayetteville, North Carolina. There wasn't a lot of short-term rentals. And the real estate team that I eventually joined uh, when I became an agent was Five Pillars Realty. And I learned from Shelby Osborne. She, she's been on the Bigger Pockets podcast. She talked about the Burn B. She was showing me her numbers for her properties. And I was looking at them and she got talking about like she's starting to do the Burr and B. So it's basically Burr into an Airbnb. I was like, well, this is a way I can make more income, less houses to manage on my back end. And from there, I can not have to own, I don't have to own 50 houses if my income is great. I need to own 25 because the market at that time was really producing a lot of income. I looked at the numbers and it was just basically the money. I hooked up with a couple other guys that were ex-military guys. We uh, started looking, we started actually, one of our first Airbnbs we ever bought was an ex-crack house. We bought a crack house and like, it was this one street. It's, it's like the nicest neighborhood in Fayetteville, but there's this one street that was like run down at the time. So we went in there and bought like the first, we fought like out of the rundown street, we went and bought the worst house. And uh, just the quick numbers on it was, you know, we bought it for 52K wholesale deal with owner seller financing. We put $35,000 into it. Seven months later, it ARV'd for 165K. And right now I'm cash flowing just over $2,000 of pure cash flow on this house. So that's why I decided to get into it because it was so much more lucrative. And that, so that was the biggest turning point was also learning how to do burrs, but burrs into Airbnbs because I could keep my money. I can keep developing. I can keep buying up short-term rentals. And when my family comes into town, or I have friends that come to towns, now I can just put them in one of my own places, cut the price. I'm still getting my money from it and everything like that. And it just made more sense to me because my goal is still early retirement. And I know you've had uh, Travis uh, Zappi on the show. And me and him are kind of friends. And the way he does Airbnb is a little bit different. He has a high income producing job. He's able to go out, he maximizes FHA loans, conventional loans, and different things like that. And he goes and buys out nice properties that are basically turnkey, comes in there, refreshes them. And then he makes a lot of money for them or makes a good investment. And he's done really good on his end. Well, I don't have a high income job like that. I'm a military guy. I'm a real estate agent. At the time, I really didn't have a job. I was a brand new real estate agent who was using army schools to supplement while he was growing his real estate portfolio. So I had to figure out different ways to make that income. And the quickest way for me to be feel comfortable with my family and our expenses was the Airbnb, the Burr and B methods, and developing those high cash flowing assets. My family's taken care of, and I can use that money and invest into more stuff. So that was the biggest pivot into short-term rentals. Not right now because of market saturation. I'm actually pivoting back into long-term rentals because everyone went out and talked about short-term rentals in Fayetteville. And like we went from, if you check AirDNA, 267 Airbnbs a few years ago, uh, like 21 months ago, 
So there's 517 now. The market's completely saturated. So me personally, I'm pivoting back to long terms because there's a need for them. They're good cash flowing. And there is a stability with a long term over a short term because short term, you might have some bad months in there. Long term, unless you, if you do nicer long terms, you can usually guarantee a check back. Maybe not as cash flow, but I like to balance my portfolio. So I'm evened out. So like, as long as my long, if my long terms cover all my mortgages for all my properties, Anything short term is a profit. And that's how I'm starting to build my portfolio, having a mixed bag. Where did that decision come from to become a real estate agent? Man, that decision came from honestly talking with Shelby Osborne. She started Five Pillars. She's been on the bigger pockets. So I was talking to her. And for me, I needed a job. And I had been a police officer in the past. And one of the advantages, and I just did not want to go back to being a police officer, especially when I was doing it. There was a lot of stuff going on, it's a different topic. I talked with Shelby and she's like, well, because of some of my skill sets, some of the things that I'm in the military, you know, I can conversate okay. And I can talk to people. I'm very confident, whatever. So she's like, why don't you try being a real estate agent? I was like, okay, I guess I'll just try to do it. It made sense for me because I needed a job. I had a lot of connections to other military investors that maybe other people didn't do. So I was able to pull on that thread more than others. And for me, it was an advantage for me because I was able to look on the MLS. I'm able to see properties. And now I'm tied in with all the wholesalers. I know the foreclosure process. I know a bunch of different things now. So I'm able to see properties before they go on the market. And that just works for me better as being a real estate agent because I can see them. Plus, when I'm driving by a really nice house and my wife likes it, I can just go on like Showtime, like, oh, I want to go see this nice house and walk like a, a million dollar house just for the fun of it. You know, that happens every once in a while. Do you focus a lot on military vets and just anybody in the military really as being a real estate agent? I think that's possibly a good way to kind of differentiate yourself. Being an agent is pretty competitive. So I think if you could really provide that niche service, that could be a, a big value add for people. If I ever went to a different market, I would say yes. But um, the Fort Bragg itself is the largest military installation, I think, in like the world. It's like the largest one in the army. So everyone is the dad, son, wife, husband of a military guy. So it's basically if you weren't the military guy, you'd be like an outcast here. Now, I do say one of the advantages is uh, not a lot of the agents are ex like, I'm still current, but like special forces, Green Berets, that's definitely a niche for me because that's like special operations. That's us doing different things. I got a little niche in there. I'm able to go see, go to different buildings that I'm familiar with because some of the guys that was, when I went through the qualification course are now being in charge of different phases of the qualification course. So I got a niche into that. You know, they're, they're cadre at some of the schools that we go to. So that definitely helps. It definitely helps that I'm one of the unique, I have those extra qualifications. You know, I wear tabs that says special forces. It really doesn't mean anything, but it, it does give me a small advantage. But in my market personally, you got to know how to use a VA loan if you're a real estate agent, because I would say 80% of all offers are VA loans. Almost everyone's PCSing. And the good thing about my market is most of the years, every three years is a PCS is a change of duty station. That happens every two to three years for regular soldier members. So we're always having the same amount of people come in and out during the summer, which actually gives you a little bit of stability because you know there's going to be a new crop coming in the summer in about two months looking for houses. A very common question I get from new investors is whether or not they need a real estate license to become an investor. And because I'm asked this so frequently, I often ask the various guests on the show their opinions so that investors that are listening to this can get a diverse set of opinions. Some people will think they should, some people think they shouldn't, some people think it doesn't really matter. So I like to give people different perspectives on that. So I want to ask you the same thing. Do you think being an agent is required to become a successful investor? And if it's not, do you think it's at least beneficial? 
My personal opinion is no, I don't think you need to be an agent to be an investor. I don't think you need to be an agent to be a successful investor. I harp on like this. Maybe this is me trying to keep my own business because most of my clients, not only residential, but most of my clients are actually investors. They're trying to invest in the Fayetteville market. Me personally, I don't think you need those to be that is because is that what you're going to be good at? Is that where your time is best spent? Or are you one of these people who can make a $500,000 tech job? pay a little bit extra to someone like me to go find you those investment properties. You're going to save your time, stress, and all that. I'm going to do it for you. We're going to build this together. And the way I explain it to everyone uh, when I talk to them, a lot of my investor clients, especially all my out-of-state ones, is think of our relationship like a triangle. Right? Each point of that triangle is a different thing. Right? I'm going to bring the knowledge part of this triangle, especially in my market, whether it's Airbnb, long-term, short-term, flips, commercial, that's what I'm going to bring. I need you to bring the money part. And at the tip of the triangle, and we're going to both bring the time effort into it. So I'll bring the knowledge, you bring the money, and then we both bring time and effort. And I will make you, I will get you wealthy by finding new properties. So I personally don't think you need to have that license. I think it more hinders you, especially if you have a high performing job. It's more stress on you. It's actually going to deter you away from real estate because you're going to be searching for yourself on top of doing your regular job, on top of a bunch of your family life and doing all this. You're going to become past saturated. Or if we find a good enough deal, I have a minimum fee. I take my cut off that fee. My job is to find you those good deals, knowing that I'm going to have to pay that fee. I'll find you a good deal that still matches your cash and cash return on investment. And we will build your portfolio by me finding it. And you'll be a lot less stressed because when you come to me, I'm tied in with some contractors. I'm a short-term property manager. We're launching our own long-term property management. So not only do I have the knowledge of being a real estate agent, I have two companies. And even if you don't use us, I have pretty accurate data, but maybe it's not on other places because I'm managing those properties. I can give you the most accurate on what's happening in those neighborhoods, whether it's short-term or long-term. I don't think you need to be that agent part, but I think it is important to find an agent that is a very investor-savvy agent. And me personally, you know, I teach a short-term rental 101 course on a lot of real estate meetups. My number one thing to do for any investor client or any, invest, any person who's trying to invest into a city is the first question I ask any agent is, do you own investment properties? If it's a no, I don't even like have a second conversation with them because you don't understand the stress that a lot of us investors go to. You don't comprehend like some like, oh my gosh, this is you know, $20,000 back from when I started off was a lot of money. It's a good chunk now, but I'm a little bit more comfortable. But unless you understand that fear of losing basically your, <laughs> your whole entire investment, and you know, this is the catapult to me being successful. I don't think you could be a good real estate agent. And I, that's why I think you just need to have agents who are find agents who specify investors if you have one of those high performing jobs. It's a lot less stress. I completely agree. When I'm looking for an agent, especially when I'm investing long distance, people who listen to the show for a while know that I live in the Boston area, but most of my properties are in Texas. So when I was looking for an agent there, I was looking for one that at least owned rental properties themselves. And if they didn't, then what I would really do is because I knew my stuff, I had my knowledge, I would really not grill them, but I'd kind of test them and see if they really knew what they were talking about. And if they did, I would potentially work with them and be okay with it. But really, I was looking for somebody who had investor experience. And when I would tell people that, they're like, oh, well, why would you ever work with them? They're your competitor. Like, how do you know that they're actually going to give you good deals that wouldn't they want to buy them themselves? So, what do you say about that kind of dynamic between incentives where your agent is probably looking to buy the similar deals that you are? That is a great question. And I'll be honest, there's some agents that have fizzled out and burned out. I can think of a couple of top of my head that have come out strong for a year. They've done that to a number of people. And by year two, no one wants to work with them. 
I don't disagree with that concern with people. The way I handle it right now is this. I tell all my clients I have a board and I have like a board of who the, my next client is. I'm really looking for properties are. I have different sections. So if you're in short-term rentals, you're in this section, long-term, this section, commercial, you're in this section. And I have a list of people. And until I'm at the top of that board where I've taken care of all my clients, I'm not looking for another property. Like I purchased two as soon as I came back from this deployment. I told all my clients, hey, I'm taking a month off from my deployment. I'm looking for two properties for myself. I was very upfront with it. But once I get these two properties that I'm looking for myself on a contract, I'm going to get back to becoming an agent. I'm referring you out to other clients until then. Then once I got my two properties, so I wasn't competing with them, I came back into the fold like, hey, I'm back working again. I'm off my term of leave. I got my properties done very upfront and now I'm finding them. Anytime I come across that issue, I'm very honest with them. If at the time we're looking for the same property, I have no problem referring you out to another agent. I'm going to take 25% of the other agent's commission still. And I'm not going to jeopardize my own brand or my own name by trying to find, try to screw over my client. And I think what's most important to showing that is I'm going on you know, year three of doing this. By continuing doing this, I have a reputation of, hey, this guy hasn't screwed me over. And I haven't fizzled out like other agents have. You know, I'm continuous. I'll do three, four deals. You know, there's agents that do 100 deals a year, three deals a month, four deals a month. That's good enough for me. I have a bunch of other things going on. And that's how I just churn out my clients. I don't market a lot. I have repeat offenders, as I call them. They keep coming back to me because I find them good deals. And I think that's another key factor showing that I'm doing the right thing. Is I have guys, I'm buying five, and this is their fifth and sixth house I'm buying for them. And that's exactly what it's happened with my real estate agent is I've bought five or six deals through him now. And so if he had kind of quote unquote screwed me over on that first deal, I wouldn't have gone back to him. And yeah, he probably would have made a little bit of money on that first deal. But now he's made commissions on what, five, six properties and probably another five or six in the next you know year or two. You got to find somebody. You can ask questions. There's a lot of times if you're concerned about that, you can just ask questions. You can kind of gauge what this person's like. You can feel how their ethics are. You could feel where their incentive structure is. And it would be very easy to tell somebody like you has their right structure in place. Here's one more thing about that is how many times have now you've recommended that agent to someone else? How many times have you been like, oh, if that guy's in that market, I'm going to recommend him. Agents who are here to play a short game won't last. I'm here to play a long game. So I'm going to make as many people happy because I know it's going to be tenfold on the back end. So you've done long-term rentals, short-term rentals, you're a real estate agent, and you're also doing or operating a co-hosting company. What exactly is a co-hosting company and why did you want to start one? After I did my first Burnbees, I learned that the co-hosts that were available in Fayetteville did not meet the standard that I wanted. And this also plays into... There's another reason for this is my wife personally, as we were having kids, wanted to start developing where she can just be a stay-at-home mom. That's what she wanted to do. So as we're starting to take these steps to be financially independent, you know, do the fire movement financially independent, retire early, we decided we also looked at the map. And this is all why we started this co-hosting company is to put kids in daycare, it's like twelve, thirteen hundred dollars a month, which is an insane amount. So what we thought is if we started a company, if we start a company good enough to replenish what her salary was at her current job, not only are we making the same amount of money, but we're actually making you know $1,200 more because that, her job would have basically evened out us sending our kids to daycare. She'd be working for nothing. What was the point of her working then if it's just to put the kids in daycare? We were looking at different things of how we can have her be a stay-at-home career, what we can do with that. You know, we're looking at like online sales, different things like that, consulting. And then at the same time, I'm like, man, all these other property managers suck. They're terrible. They don't care about the client's property. It's like, 
I think we should start a co-hosting company for Airbnbs. You know, we're getting into it. We have two. What we'll do is we'll test out our company, our company on our own properties. So, like when people ask us how we started, it's like, hey man, I put my money where my mouth was. I test out my properties. That is why I become successful. You should have us co-host your property. So we talked about that on like a Tuesday. I went at this time I was a full-time real estate agent. So I went into the hang spot with the other real estate guys from Five Pillars. And, you know, me and my wife were like, oh, okay, let's just talk about this. And I walked in the office two days later, you know, and told them, hey, I'm starting a co-hosting company. Uh, we'll be up and running in 90 days. I went home, told my wife that, and she was not happy because she wanted to figure out what we were doing first. But no, nah, I said, no, nah, we're just going to commit to it. So we committed to building this company. We first co-hosted our first two properties and we learned a lot of lessons. And then we started developing those SLPs. We started hiring other people. What we found out is people really liked our services. So the difference between us and a lot of co-hosting is we're basically centralized out of Fairfield. We're like a traditional long-term property management company where we are just local boots on the ground. We walk our properties after every cleaning. We do some of the basic maintenance ourselves. We just launched our own cleaning company as well. So we had that internal. We're launching our own long-term property management company. That's coming up. So we have all that internal where we're, there's these other companies that are like, hey, I'll manage a property in the Smoky Mountains. I'll manage them in Texas. Where we just concentrate on one market. Hey, our market is Fayetteville. We're going to be the best in Fayetteville. We're going to maintain the super host status. And what has happened is because the way we do stuff, the way we're always checking properties, we're able to go. And if there's an issue, we're able to get out there that night because we always have someone on call. And even if we can't fix that issue, what we found is like just talking to someone, knowing that someone's there to care about you or care about the problem. We've been maintaining our five-star reviews. And uh, I think we're at 39 property or no. 42 properties because we just dropped the triplex and where we're still super hopes under one account with 42 properties. Uh, so that was our biggest pivot because there was bad service. We saw an opportunity, no one was taking it and we grew and blew up because of that. So how does, what exactly is a co-host? I'm not super familiar with it. So does somebody else own an Airbnb and they come to you and say, Hey, will you host this with me? Or will you essentially be like my property manager for my short-term rental? That's exactly what it is. We're going to take care of all your automatic generated messages. We're going to respond to all the guests for you. We're going to handle all the reviews. We're going to ensure all the cleanings are done. We're going to ensure that if there's any maintenance is done. For us, if you do our premier service, which is local to only Fayetteville, we're walking the properties after every cleaning to ensure they meet standard. If a property sit there for more than like three or four days and we haven't had a guest check-in, then we have a guest check-in. We're walking that property again before that guest checks in. We're replenishing all the supplies. All your toiletries and all that we pay for, we take care of all that for you. Then in the month, all you do is collect a check from our bookkeeper. We have a CPA that we have that does all of our bookkeeping. They do owner breakdowns. Basically, it's completely passive at this point because all we're doing is like, hey, we're using pricing software for you. We have a professional writer out of California that writes all of our descriptions. You hand the property over to us. We get it set up. It meets our standards. We do uh, inspections every six months. We go around and take photos like, hey, this needs to be fixed, this, this, and this. We send you photos with like a document saying, hey, these are the issues. You need to fix this. And if you're saying, okay, we'll fix them. We'll get all the, the maintenance people out there, any type of things. We'll handle all that. And it just comes out of your stuff. And it's just really your approval. We wanted to develop something that was completely passive for someone because you know that was a complaint a lot of people like, oh, you know, short-term rentals aren't actually completely passive. There's a lot of work in there. Well, now, if you get a good co-hosting service, and I prefer you know boots in the ground local, you can be passive. It's just going to be, hey, answering a couple messages from that co-host and we're going to handle all the other issues for you. What does it feel like that cost? How do you structure that? So we actually have three different structures depending on what you want. 
So we have the premier service, which is the 25% where it's all inclusive. Everything's going to be done. Uh, we have a 20%, which is more typical towards your traditional where, hey, you're still going to pay for the supplies. We'll coordinate a bunch of stuff. We'll still coordinate the maintenance, all the messages. We're not going to walk the properties after every cleaning. That's more traditional towards your virtual management companies where they're not walking between every cleaning. They're coordinating a lot of the, some of the work to be done by the cleaners. So you're giving the cleaners a little extra fee. And now we've just launched our 10% management fee. What all we're doing is we're handling all guest communications and we'll coordinate with any cleaners. And then our CPAs will still give you, uh, we'll pay you out at the end of the month. That's what we're calling our Slack service. And that one has like, say, that one's just, we're going to handle the communications and the cleaners. Everything else is on you. So we have different options. All of it's based off of percentage, 10, 20, 25. Is that based on revenue? Yes. So it depends on what type of revenue. Because the way Airbnb pays off, right? Let's say you stayed at a house for four nights and it was $100 a night plus a $100 cleaning fee. Airbnb is going to pay you out $500, right? For four nights, $100 a night, that gives you $400 plus a cleaning fee is $500. Minus their little fee. Uh, yeah, they're going to take that all. This is what Airbnb completely pays you out at is the $500 when it hits your bank account. What a lot of property managers will do is they'll take their 20% off that $500. That affects on how much money because you still have to pay fee to the cleaners. The way we do it is we just pay the cleaners their $100 as owe, and then we take our 25% off the $400 that you only earn for the booking. That's also a little trick for people out there. Check how your property manager is taking his cut or your co-hosting service is taking their cut of their money. You might be owed some money. As I was preparing for this interview, I was going through some of your properties and checking out your website. And I noticed that you actually have listings of your properties on your own site. And the checkout or property page on your site actually looks quite similar to Airbnb, but it's your own and you own that kind of digital real estate. Do you utilize Airbnb and do your own marketing to find guests or do you do it solely on your own? We do it on all everything. We do on traveling nurses pages. Airbnb, VRBO, and our own personal page. You know, our goal was to, to push. We have a certain quota of how many people we want to push to our personal page. We leave all doors open. We post on Facebook's uh, traveling nurses pages so they can direct book with us. They can book through Airbnb, VRBO. And then we found out VRBO actually put some of our properties because of how highly they're rated on like booking.com and a few other places, which we didn't know happened. I guess it's how they own it. So no, we, we market everywhere, but our goal is still for a certain percentage to be booked direct booking. Uh, the advantages for the guests is it's going to save them some of those Airbnb costs. And the advantages for us is if we can develop that direct booking site, it allows us in case anything ever happens with Airbnb to still live, not die, and not have to, to uh, rely on one like pond or one ecosystem to eat off of. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. What would you say your breakdown is of bookings? Like what percent comes from Airbnb? What comes from VRBO? What comes from direct bookings? Right now it is, actually, I know the numbers. It's about 82% come from Airbnb. Another 11%-ish comes from VRBO. And then the remaining comes from direct booking. How do you handle all of the backend operations that Airbnb provides when you do your direct bookings? Like messaging or even like the biggest pieces like maybe insurance and the coverages that Airbnb protects hosts with? The way we basically handle that is we have a... For us to book on a website, there is a $600 hold on a security deposit for the property. And that's how we do it. And then there's some contract stuff that we do through it where you say, I agree to these rules when you're booking. Um, That kind of sets a standard. But you also go on the same automatic generated messages that Airbnb and VRBO get sent out. So the rules are all sent out to you the same way, whether it's your cell phone and stuff like that. All that same information. So we could set up in case we ever had to go to court or anything like, hey, they've been warned about this. They said, yes, I agree. They signed off on this. They even got text messages. And then we keep a $600 security deposit for every booking that you do on a direct booking site. And as soon as you come out, we clear it and you go, it goes back into your account. How about insurance? Insurance is handled by the owners. All have to have a specific insurance to kind of work with that. And on top of that, we have insurances, whether it's general per property and umbrella that kind of handles all those issues. And we have to, we've worked through our insurance guy to tell exactly what needs to be in their policy for that. And that's how that's handled. That question is 100% on my wife. 
I have a breakdown. She understood that a little bit better than me when the insurance guy was talking. But basically the way it's explained to me is by the insurance guys, basically we'll have insurances. Uh, the property owners have some of that. And we tell in their contract that they sign with us, they have to have a very specific type of insurance to help cover them. I've been battling the same dynamic of utilizing a third-party platform versus doing it myself when I'm renting out my RV, but it just doesn't seem to be worth it until I have a bigger fleet. Right now, I just have one, but as I prepare for two, three, four, five of these, it starts to make a little bit more sense potentially to go on my own. So I'm curious, at what point is it worth it to build out your own booking platform for short-term rentals? How big does the business need to be or how many units do you need for it to make sense? For us, it's actually pretty cheap. This is more back information. We use Hostaway as our backend system. Hostaway itself allows us to book on all these different platforms at once. So if one gets reserved on VRBO, it automatically blocks out Airbnb and vice versa. So if you actually look on our website, it's presented by Hostaway. So we built our backend website through Hostaway itself. I'm not good with computers, nor is my wife. So we hired a, a website designer. She learned the system. She designed it all from us. And then she integrated all the pieces for Hostaway in there. So it's actually pretty cheap because once you get Hostaway, it's just a free part of Hostaway. You just need to figure it out. And we just paid someone to do it. I think it cost us a couple of grand to help build that website. And that was just the easiest way for us to do is just outsource it to someone else. And Hostaway already had that option for us. So it made sense. I think for growth, direct booking websites, I think you can get away with if you only have a couple of units with Facebook advertising, good Instagramming. And using a marketed campaign on them, and they directly contact you, and you work a deal through Venmo and different things like that. I think once you get to that like five, 10 mark is where you definitely can start considering bringing in your own platform so people have options. Dude, I'm about to get some hate for this, what I'm about to say, but I don't know. I kind of, I think it's a little janky when people are like, oh, check out my direct booking website. I have one property for the last four years. I get it, you're proud of it, but did you really need to spend all that money? Was that the right investment, or could you invest in something else on your property? Right, just have a good Facebook page, do a good Instagram, do a TikTok, and book like that. I don't know, but that's just me. But like us, we have so many. As we continue to grow, we're starting to open up and maybe franchise to another market. Our branding and stuff like that, it makes sense for us because we're going to start adding more places as the growth. So I think at that about five, definitely that ten mark, that's when you start looking into it and definitely finding a backend system like Hostaway that allows you to build into it and just eat off that ecosystem. Short-term rentals have been gaining in popularity a lot over the last few years. You even mentioned earlier in that conversation that in Fayetteville, listings have doubled or more than doubled in just a couple of years. Are you worried about not only the competition, but also kind of the hype, you know, the quote-unquote hype that is around short-term rentals right now? Yes. And I don't worry about it from my own standpoint. I worry about it for the people. I remember when I was a young agent or not a young, a young investor, and I got lucky. I found a good agent that actually taught me. The unfortunate part of doing some real estate investing is there's some predators out there that can advertise very well, and people will lose money because they're going to buy into these so-called, so-called programs. They're going to teach them how to be the next super host and stuff like that. That's where I worry about it the most is it from an investor to an investor is someone getting used because this guy just is a good marketing. There's plenty of people who do good at marketing. What they're teaching isn't the best. Like What they're teaching is very basic, where if you just follow the right people, you get part of the right real estate teams, or you get into the right group of circles, you can learn a lot of this yourself. And that will definitely help. The hype I think the hype of investing will go down, which will be good for the properties that have been able to survive. 
there are going to be a lot of people whose properties that bought into short-term rentals because it was the hype. Everyone was doing it. You know, short-term rental shop was going here. You know, Avery Carl is posting here. And these different people are talking about these different areas, which they're doing really well. But some people are going to get used by agents who are just looking for a sale and not know what they're doing when they buy these properties. And they're going to die out and they're going to have a bad taste in their mouth for short-term rentals. I think the market for people renting them out is going to stay the same because legislation's level, you're seeing a lot of states fight back saying, hey, cities can't regulate these things like that. They can't ban Airbnbs. Uh, I know North Carolina is one of them. I believe Michigan's another state that are really pushing for people to have independent rights at their states. So I think the hype of those, there being people to stay at those is going to grow. COVID was good for that in a lot of ways because people wanted their own house. They wanted their own unit. They wanted to stay in a hotel. Hotels shut down. Airbnbs in a lot of places were still up and running. So even when you were traveling, you can go to an Airbnb. It's usually sanitized. It's usually pretty clean. At least all of our properties are. So I think the hype of people using them is going to continue to grow. And I think but in four or five years, the hype of people investing in them are going to die out because they didn't get with good agents. They bought some plan that didn't really teach them how to be real estate investors. And they half-assed their property and they aren't able to keep the numbers that they want. And then they're going to have to sell it off. Are you concerned about the risk from increased laws and regulations around short-term rentals? It sounds like you're focusing in states where ideally that's not going to be an issue, but as you expand maybe into other states or just even in your state, is there any risk for you there? Are you any concerned about that? I actually am somewhat concerned with Fayetteville because they have done no regulations. There's no regulations on it. As long as you pay your taxes, if you have a direct booking website, and that's the whole thing. But if you do your own direct booking website, you have to remit those taxes yourself. Learn that. I definitely think that's definitely one of those situations where us down in the future, it's something to be concerned about. And that's one of the reasons I'm starting to get more involved with the city council. I want to be at the city meetings when they talk about this. And right now, our regulations haven't happened. So I actually have more of a concern because there's nothing on the books. Now, if there was a city that had the same regulations the last seven years, everyone's happy. You know, There's a comfortability of that. Like, hey, I understand. I know what, how the plan inside the rules. When they actually do regulate it, what's going to happen? We're going to have to be able to flex. I think for the most part, we're going to start seeing a lot more legislation at the state level saying to cities that they can't regulate people's personal properties. There was definitely a pendulum swing a few years ago where cities were coming down left and right, banning Airbnb, especially cities with big hotels. A lot of hotels were losing business. And magically, all of a sudden, regulation for Airbnbs came in. It's just just a huge surprise. That was all sarcasm. But what you've seen at the legislation level is people who are starting to get involved with them, whether it's the VRMAs, other local uh, investing groups, and making sure we have a voice in them. I think that's going to be the biggest thing that we need to to make sure we continue being able to invest into this type of asset is people being involved in their local city council, being involved, showing the good light. I know with all of our properties, since most of my properties were burned bees, I usually took the black eye of the neighborhood, the worst prayer. But now I have one of the nicest properties. I have fenced in, nice lights, there's flowers there. It looks good. It makes that street look good. That whole street that I said used to be like drug out houses has been almost completely flipped. I own three houses on there. And I was part of that. And then a lot, all the other places have been bought out and turned into nice houses, sold to nice families, even though the apartment complexes have been upgraded. So there's definitely advantages to it, but it all comes down to people staying involved. And it should be a concern of everyone because anytime city council can you get the wrong person that is a stay at home wife. Or a stay-at-home dad who wants to get their five minutes of fame and goes to every city council meeting, you need to be there involved in them. What is the biggest thing that keeps you up at night in your real estate business? 
That is a great question. Finding deals for my clients, I think, is the biggest thing. Uh, it used to be contractors. I've paid out a lot of money to bad contractors, but just to get the do- job done. But it's going to be continue finding new deals and shifting as the market shifts, making sure I'm staying, finding deals that other people aren't looking and moving to the next thing before everyone else. I think one of the reasons I was six, I've been successful as an agent is because I've always pivoted before everyone else. So I pivoted into Airbnbs right when they were still fresh and new in Fayetteville. Now I'm going to be one of the first people I'm, I'm pivoting back to long terms. Uh, a lot of people are still calling me about Airbnbs. I'm telling them the same thing. The market's saturated. I wouldn't recommend them in Fayetteville. So it's finding those deals and making sure I keep pivoting for my clients and my own investments. As we wrap up the show, I often like to turn the tables for a second and let the guest become the host and ask me a question. So Mark, what question do you have for me? You've had a lot of people on your show. I love what you've been doing. What type of guests would you like to hear about? Like, What is you looking to develop and what would be beneficial for you to have on your show so you can learn some information about? What I like most from a guest is somebody, it's kind of selfishly, but is most beneficial is somebody that is talking about something that I'm looking to do. Like I'm looking to start buying some Airbnb properties eventually in the short term. And so talking to somebody like you, and like you mentioned, Travis, and we've had some others on the show talk about Airbnb. So they can come on the show and I can learn from some of the greatest and most successful Airbnb investors that there are one-on-one right here on the show. And so for me, my favorite thing is to bring on people who can talk to me about the things that I'm looking to do in my business. And it just so happens that a lot of people that listen to the show are also interested in some of these ideas. And so it kind of works out. And I just had a great... I just read a... It was awesome. I read a really good Bigger Pockets tax strategy book, and I was able to have the author of the book on the show. I read through the book. I had a bunch of questions. I was like, awesome. I could just invite her on the show, get my, <laughs> get my questions answered directly from the author of the book. And that's happened a bunch, a bunch of books that I've read. I'm like, oh, I have these questions. I wish I could ask the author. And I'm like, oh, wait, I can. So I just reach out to them. They come on the show and we talk about the questions I have about the book. And you know, as a byproduct, other people that are listening get to learn from it as well. Those are my kind of favorite guests. Now, before we sign off, I want to give you a chance to tell the audience where the best place is to connect with you and learn more if they're interested. Best place to connect with me on all platforms, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, eventually YouTube, working on that one. But uh, Horton Stay Rentals, Horton, H-O-R-T-O-N, Stay, and then Rentals with an S at the end. That's on all platforms. Directly to me on my Instagram, Mark underscore II, Mark the second. Those are your best areas. And then if you want to check out uh, HortonStayRentals.com, you can find us on there. And yeah, those are all the best places to hit me up, whether it's short-term rentals, real estate agents. I'm in a group with a lot of real estate agents that are all over the country that do short-term rentals in the market. So if you're looking for something and you like what I have to say, I can link you up with those people. Just let me know. Awesome. I'll be sure to put a link to all your different resources in the show notes for anybody that's interested in checking them out. Mark, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.